The church has been declining in American culture for decades. So what does this mean? What does it mean for us as a church here and now? How can we reverse the trend? How can we change the fact that younger generations don't know Jesus Christ? That's today on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church. This is Pastor Jason. Wherever you're listening and however you're listening to this, I pray that you feel God's blessing today. Well, we are in a new sermon series now. Uh, This is a message series that I'm doing about really the vision of Tower Hill and what we're hoping to focus on in the next year. I I try to do this every uh, late spring uh, as we get closer to summer and just to get a chance to digest and think about where where we see God taking us in the next year, and we have a chance to kind of reflect on where we've been and what the issues are, and then where we think God is calling us. And I spent a lot of time in this message unpacking and really painting a picture of church in America, which isn't a pretty one. And that's that's on purpose, because I think we have to really address where we are honestly, if we're going to do anything about it. Any of you who are in business, you know that this is true. You have to see the problem for what it is and all of its ugliness so that you, you got to know how bad things are if you're ever going to move forward, if you're ever going to work on them. And so uh, that's really the goal of this series called We Can Do More Together. And uh, I, I want to just tease the next installment next week is going to be talking specifically about the next generation, also known as Generation Z. Uh, I've heard it also called um, the pivotals, right? So you have the millennials and you have the pivotals. But I think understanding the next generation is a huge part of what it's going to mean for us as a church to move forward with the gospel uh, in our culture, with our kids. You have to understand that uh, this next generation is completely different than the generations that came before. Even Even just looking at the fact that they're the very first digitally native generation. I mean, they were the ones who were born and they immediately knew how to work the iPad. You didn't have to teach them. They just figured it out. So um, again, that'll be part two of We Can Do More Together coming up next week. Uh, But before we jump into today's uh, part one of the message series, just a reminder, if you're listening in real time, that we have our congregational meeting this June 10th at five o'clock. There's a potluck. You could see the website for details on what to bring. And uh, we're going to elect our officers, which we do every year, our church officers. And then also I'm going to uh, talk a bit about the strategy that we're going to use to fulfill the vision for next year. So we're going to talk about some new initiatives that we're going to do. It's going to be exciting and hope that you can make it for that. Uh, All right. So without any further ado, here is part one of We Can Do More Together. Have a great week, everyone. This series for the next two weeks, we're talking about this specifically. What is the relationship between church and culture? And what is our vision at Tower Hill to reach the people around us? And the idea is the next two weeks, we'll kind of ramp up on that. And then at the congregational meeting to unfold a bit more of the strategy that we're thinking about for next year. Uh, in the meantime, forgive my, you know, super cash with earbuds you know, uh, preaching to you, but you know, the worship leader can't be wearing a jacket. That's just, that's no good. So uh, anyway, this series is called, We Can Do More Together. We can do more together because that is the God's honest truth. And, and let me also say this, many of you who've been here 
with me when I started six years ago, almost six years ago. Um, you know this about me, in that we make a lot of changes around here. I always have my foot on the gas. The downside is it might feel like I'm leaving people behind as far as communication goes. Like you might understand, like what? Wait a second. Who got hired? Who isn't there anymore? Who do I talk to to do this event? Uh, what's going on? Why are we doing it this way? And my goal is to get better at communicating the why. Because I'm so worried about the what, I'm just going 100 miles an hour. And sometimes I forget to bring everybody on board. We talk about it at staff. We talk about it. So I want to do better. And this summer, my goal is to create some kind of document uh, that's really going to say kind of how we got to here and where we plan to go. So I know that if I say it in front of you, I'll be accountable and I'll have to actually do it. But it's hard because I feel tremendous pressure. I feel like every minute we waste doing paperwork on something is a minute we waste reaching people for Jesus. So there's a tension there that, uh, that we're trying to navigate. So uh, I'm going to paint a picture for you. And I have to be honest, it's not going to be a pretty picture at first. But don't get too bummed out. But in order to address an issue, you have to see what the issue really is. All of you who are involved in business, you know this is true. So let's talk about it. Culture is moving fast. To quote Ferris, Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. And that's true with culture, technology. And what's happened is it's moved so fast that it has left some institutions in America behind. You see this in business all the time. I love using this example of Kodak because Kodak had once had 90% of the retail market share of film in the United States. In fact, it was coined. You're having a Kodak moment. I mean, they basically copyrighted a trademark taking a picture. They had it all. They even are the ones who developed digital photography. But they couldn't figure out how to make it work in their business model. And the unthinkable happened in 2012. They went bankrupt. Nobody thought that could ever happen to a company like Kodak. They had it all. Literally. Then I even just look at what happened last year. Toys R Us. Are you kidding me? Toys R Us? It was founded in 1948. There was an economist who once said that Toys R Us has a death grip on U.S. toy sales. And then Walmart happened. And then Target. And then Amazon. And then goodbye. Toys R Us. I mean, this was the place, man. Jeffrey, where a kid could be a kid. That's where we always went to get our toys. Declared bankruptcy this last year, as you probably have all heard, and liquidating sales. So all grandmas and moms and dads are all going there to, like, clear them out. And you're like, man, could they stay in business? Or those? But no. Toys are us. And this happens in business all the time. But as you know, this also happens in churches. I love using the example of the Crystal Cathedral because it was kind of the, one of the early mega churches, as you would call them. Church over 10,000. Dr. Robert Schuler was an innovator in his day. That's the pastor who had, would go to the drive-in theater and do church before they built the Crystal Cathedral. I mean, he was an innovator. The Hour of Power ministry. Many of you grew up watching the Hour, Dr. Robert Schuler, Hour of Power, or at least you know what it looks like in your head. You could see like the blue choir robes and everything. 10,000 members, 2,700 seat auditorium. 
2010 declares bankruptcy. 2012 is sold. Even this church that it seems unthinkable that anything could ever happen, it is left behind by the pace of culture. They just could not keep up and adapt around it. You know this is true just with your own eye test about what is happening in America. But a stat that we use all the time is, and it's true, 4,000 churches every single year close their doors forever. 4,000 worshiping communities close their doors. 2.7 million people leave church for good. And the average church size in America is 75. 75. Now, and I think that number is a little inflated because that includes mega churches. That includes churches of tens and tens of thousands. And I think that's pushed that number up from even what most churches experience. The church's place in culture is not what it was. It used to be a pastor was looked up to like a doctor or a lawyer. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, maybe not the lawyer. Just kidding, lawyers. Just kidding. We love you. We love you. Lawyers for Jesus. So, not hating on lawyers. Because one day I might need you. The, thank you. Courtesy laugh. But even see what's happening in our own denomination. For example, the Presbyterian Church USA. Here are five-year stats from 2012 to 2016. Basically, we lost 367,159 people in just five years. Our uh, Monmouth Presbytery is made up of 44 Presbyterian churches. If you took all the members in all those churches and multiplied it by 39, that's how you'd get that number. That's just five years. That's not even last year. That's 2012 to 2016. And I think scarier is look at the age 25 and under. Fewer and fewer and fewer that we're reaching. Like I said, it's not a pretty picture. You look around at churches all across America, many of them, especially what we call mainline denominational churches. So Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, um, those are down significantly. Why? I think it's because they're not able to keep up with culture. It's an institution that it too is failing. I want to do this. Turn to somebody next to you, maybe somebody that you came with, and just describe how does this information make you feel? Unfortunately, I'm not done yet. (laughs) According to Barna's research, who's done research on this whole next generation, Generation Z, they're calling it. So you have uh, Gen X, which is my generation, Gen Y, which are the millennials, and then Gen Z, my kids' age. The oldest of Gen Z is now 18. It's that whole youth generation. This is the percentage of people with a biblical worldview 
and how it's declined in each generation. So they don't put the builder generation up there because many more of them had a biblical worldview. But then their children, the kids of the 60s, the church was not able to keep up with the changes in culture. It was not able to address them in real time. And then what happened was only 10% of baby boomers claimed to have a biblical worldview. 10%, only one out of 10. And then you see then, naturally, by generation, it's getting worse. Gen X, 7%, millennials, 6%, and Gen Z, 4%. In fact, this is also according to Barna's research, teens 13 through 18 years old are twice as likely as adults to say they are atheists. Twice as likely. And if you're anything like me, that stat hurts a lot worse. And you know this is true. You see it happening in culture. You see it happening in our families. Our kids or our grandkids aren't as engaged as church as we wish they were. Don't worry, there's some good news. Because I think we could do something about it. I spent uh, this week, a couple days this week, suffering for Jesus in Colorado. It's tough when Jesus sends you to the Rockies. It's really... right. I love when he does that. So uh, every year, I, I'm a part of the program team of the mission trips that we go on. So our kids are going to go to Camillus, New York, end of June. I will be on that trip uh, leading the camp from up front. So I'll be sort of the pastor of the week. So every year, they bring us in, us pastors in, and we learn the new program. So uh, I have this habit now that I'm used to going to uh, Colorado every year for a couple days. And that is once training is done, I find a way to drive up the mountain from Loveland, Colorado, where the training is, to straight shot up to Estes Park. Estes Park is one of my favorite places on earth. Um, And so I go up there, I get a cup of coffee, a big cup of coffee, and I sit by the Big Thompson River. The Big Thompson River runs right through town, right through all the stores and everything else. And there's a little, there's this cool walkway with benches, park benches. And there's even places with benches that go into the water so that you can stick your feet in. It's a really cool city design. But I like going there with my cup of coffee and my journal. And I just, I think, I pray, I reflect. And I was looking at the river. It occurred to me that what I saw happening in the river was a lot like the church and culture. So, you know, just come along for the ride on this one. It's a little outside the box. But I'm thinking, if culture is the rushing water, it is the water. And the church are the rocks. I noticed something about the rocks, that there were four different kinds. And I think each kind represents kind of a different way of thinking about church, or a different church. And its relationship with the river, its relationship with culture. So the first one are the rocks that are under the water. They're they're in the river, but they're under the surface. So you can't really see them, and the water just keeps rushing by it. So in other words, they're not changing the direction of the river. They're not having that kind of impact on culture. But they are having an impact, because you notice what happens is, when the water passes over the rocks, it creates waves, it creates ripples. I think these are churches that are trying Churches that are really trying to reach their community, to do better at communicating with younger generations. Maybe they don't have it all figured out, but they're making some waves. And I think that's good. And there are a lot of churches that are in that, like, I don't know, I don't know what we're doing, we don't have it figured out, but at least we're in the water. 
And, and they are making a difference in culture. It's just culture, though, continues to move past them a bit. Then there's the rock in the river that's on top of the surface. No, go back. Rock in the river on top of the surface. This rock actually does change the river's flow. It creates little eddies where the water actually goes backwards a bit or circles around the rock. I think this is the kind of church that we should all strive to be. We are in the middle of culture, but we're having such an impact that we're building our own culture within culture. We're we're able to share the love of Jesus Christ, and it's slowing down their movement down the lane. They're pondering. They're staying around the rock, and it's changing lives. And then the thought occurred to me, what if we had more and more and more churches? You get enough churches, you could change the entire flow of the river. These are churches that not just are trying, but they're really succeeding at making those connections to younger generations, connecting them with the message of Jesus Christ. These first two, I think, are good. These are good ways of being church. But I noticed some other kinds of rocks. The first was uh, number three, the rock that's accidentally outside the river. In other words, perhaps it used to be where the river flowed. The river used to flow over it, and now it doesn't. Culture has passed it by. It is now high and dry with no connection with culture at all. Accidentally, though, they wish the water would come back, but they're so far on the outside, they're going to need some work to get back into the flow of the river. And I think this is where most churches in America are stuck. They're like, what happened? People used to come to us, and now they're coming less and less and less, and we don't know what to do about it. We're just doing our thing. But the thing is, then they're not trying to communicate in such a way that they could be in the river, mixing it up. And so they're accidentally outside of it. They're not against the river. In fact, they wish the river would redirect to them, but it doesn't. I think this is where a lot of churches are stuck. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, as when I was on one of these mission trips, I went to worship at a church in upstate New York. Teeny tiny church. I mean, there were probably 12 people in attendance that day. And um, the pastor gets up, and two things happened in that service. I was like, huh? The first thing, the first huh, was they, they had this uh, cardboard church. And at one point in the service, without announcing anything, Everybody in the church got up and put a coin in the little church. And I didn't even know what was going on. Like, they didn't announce it. Just everybody knew what to do. It was like this secret. I don't know if they were using signs or, like, baseball or something. But they knew, time to get up and stick the little coin in the cardboard church. And I'm like, what's happening? Should I I get up? Am I, should I not? You know, I didn't know what was going on. But that was nothing compared to what happened soon thereafter. It was time for the children's sermon. Zero children in attendance. Zero. And the pastor gets to me and goes, and now for the children's sermon. And I kind of giggled. I'm like, oh, that was a good one. Like he's, he's making a funny. He was not making a funny. He proceeded to deliver the children's sermon, which was like 15 minutes long. Hello, I can only get preached to once, not twice. Sorry. You're not like that, I'm sure. He goes into the whole thing, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking at everybody, and they're into it. I was like, wow, 
what is happening here? And after the service, I went to go talk to him. I, honestly, I really just wanted to go like encourage him somehow. I don't think I did. I think I messed that part up because I asked him, I asked him why he did the children's message. I was just, just out of curiosity. And the thing is, the poor guy felt, he looked so defeated. Like he had, whatever ounce of creativity he had, had gone bye-bye years ago. Because he was just, I think he probably felt stuck there. And uh, I'm like, you know, what's up? He's like, well, the people love it. All right, do you ever, do you get children? He's like, yeah, you know, a couple times a year, we have some families that come in from out of town and visit, and we have the kids there. And then, you know, you could tell, you could tell, like, he knew where I was going with this. Like, why are you doing a children's sermon? And then he's like, yeah, you know, but our people, they like the way that I talk in the children's message. And I'm thinking to myself, you just talk that way for your sermon. And I, but I didn't. I have a heart. But I thought this brought home the point that many churches accidentally become placed outside the river. They no longer connect with culture in any meaningful way. And part of it's because they're stuck doing a way of church that they've been in forever and not thinking about, is this reaching people? Is this, is this doing something to move the needle? Is this doing something to reach people for the gospel? It's whatever filter that is, is gone. It's just about what we've always done. And we hope the water comes back our way someday. We hope those kids show up one day. So we're going to keep doing the children's sermon, even if there's nobody left. There's one more kind of rock. The one that's intentionally outside the river. I was uh, looking at the river and you could see there were some rocks that were built way off to the side, strategically as a barrier. And I was thinking, I feel like some churches are like that too. Like, you know what? We're not part of culture and good. To heck with all those people who are getting it wrong and fake Christians and they don't care enough to come to Jesus. They don't care enough to come to church. We're just going to do things our own way. And they isolate themselves. And they're just like, you know what? We're just going to do our thing until everybody's gone. I don't see any justification in Scripture for that whatsoever. But it happens. You see, it's one thing to just be sad about the state of the church or the state of your church. It's quite another thing to do something about it. I say this, and I don't mean it to be not spiritual. It might sound this way. Praying harder doesn't make you more relevant. Because there are tons of faithful people in those dying churches. And Lord knows they've been praying for years that the river would come back their way. But see, our relationship with God has always been a partnership. You got to do something about it. And I believe we can. I want to point you to a place where someone did something about their sadness. I'm going to take you to the story of Nehemiah. Because if we're going to impact culture with the gospel, we got to be in the water. And he realized the same thing. Here's Nehemiah 1. So, Quickly, Nehemiah, he was during the time of the exile, which means uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed. All the Israelites were taken off to Persia. They were living in captivity. Nehemiah actually was in a really high-ranking position in the Persian government. He was cupbearer to the king. And you know, you ever hear the stories of the cupbearers? I mean, they were like the most trusted people because they're tasting, tasting the wine before the king gets it, just in case, right? Tasting the food. 
He was cupbearer to the king. He had a lot of pull and a lot of trust of the king. And so here, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I feel like this is where many of us in churches get stuck. We're very sad about the state of things. We're sad that our kids don't like XYZ. We're sad that our grandkids don't want to come to church. We're sad, we're sad, we're sad. We're sad that the PCUSA has lost all these members. We're sad at what's happened to the church in America. And we weep and we mourn, but we never do anything about it. You also know me by now well enough to know that I couldn't survive in a church that didn't want to do anything about it. I'm not made that way. I'm not a hospice pastor. It's just going to wait till the church is gone. We got to keep moving, keep working. And it takes a lot to do it. Now, Jerusalem had become like a rock outside the river at that time, right? It had no impact on culture. There was nothing left. The walls were torn down. There was no culture to speak of in that. Jerusalem has lost, had kind of lost its place in the world. But then what did Nehemiah do? He took all of his influence and he convinced, the, he didn't even convince hard. He just simply asked the king. He said, can I go rebuild the walls? Can I take a bunch of people and re- rebuild the walls? Oh yeah, and by the way, will you fund it? He said, yes. Nehemiah used everything at his disposal, all of his relationships, and he leveraged it to put that rock back in the river, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He gathered families, tribes, priests, everyone to come and help him in the process. All right, Nehemiah 4. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. Listen, culture doesn't always like when the church gets back into the river. They feel threatened. Wait a minute. It was much better when they were off to the side and insignificant because they have some different ideas about how the world ought to be. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. In other words, they did something about it together. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. That's a powerful thing to say, all right, church, all right, people of God, I want you to stand in the gaps of those walls and fight for what you love the most. Your children, your nephews and nieces, your grandchildren. Because they're the future of this Jerusalem that we're rebuilding. Don't stop. Fight with all of your heart. And you know what happened? Even though the Israelites were severely outnumbered, they didn't want anything to do with that fight. When the church gathers around and they start fighting for their kids, <laughs> you don't want anything to do with that fight. And they were able to rebuild the wall. Here's the bottom line. I think three things. The first is we can do more together. It's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us pulling in the same direction to make an impact on that water that's just rushing by. All of your gifts, all of all the things that God's blessed you with in your abilities, your skills. And usually you know that you have a God-given gift when it comes easy to you. And it doesn't come easy to everybody. The church needs all of your giftedness, everything you have to make a difference in this culture. And the second thing is this. We need to stand in the gaps and fight for the next generation. That's the only way to turn this tide. And third, this rock in the river will look different. It will look different than the rock used to look 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years ago. It's just going to look different. Not better or worse, it's just going to look different. It's kind of like the way we experience, uh, remember when you used to have to go to Blockbuster to rent a movie? Those were the days. You get to shop all the movies and you go find the perfect movie and it's not there. It was great. Kids are fighting over what you're going to watch. Although there was something that we all enjoyed about that experience of going to Blockbuster to rent the movie. And nowadays it's like the kids are like, what? You had to go to a place to get a thing? What are you talking about? What does Be Kind Rewind mean? That's it. <laughs> but now everything's instantaneous. I mean, you, you don't have to leave the house. You can all fight together over what you're going to watch without going into public. And fine. <laughs> but it's just, it's not better or worse. It's just different. There are puts and takes. There are pluses and minuses. And true with the future church. It's going to be different. It's always going to rally around the gospel. But the way it speaks about Jesus Christ is always going to change as fast as culture. We speak the language of culture to deliver the gospel. So what does that look like? I want to end real quick with the early church. Because they showed us exactly. Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, in public. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, 
praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Genuine fellowship, genuine worship, genuine learning, and then going out into the public and sharing your faith with the world. And the water will start gathering around the rock. That's what we're trying to do here. Because here's the good news. We're making a difference. Our PCUSA numbers, go on to the next slide, shows those numbers again. But here's the thing. Yes, if you were to look at our overall membership, it is down, but our engagement is way up. Way up. Worship attendance is way up in the last five years. Giving is way up. The number of teens and kids who come to our weekly fellowships, way up. People engaged in small groups is up. All the things that you can measure are up. We are bucking the trend of what's happening in this country. Let's not stop. Let's not ever stop. We could do more together. 